Hello and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Mandeep and with me today is Diogo Monica, co-founder of Anchorage Digital. Diogo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You guys clearly have been building this company and since you co-founded it, why don't we start there in terms of what Anchorage is all about? What is the problem that you're trying to solve and maybe put into context the current environment for what you're doing? Of course, maybe a little bit of a, a long story medium, but I think it's worth to contextualize why Anchorage and why we've decided to do things we, we've decided to do. But the company, in a way, starts about 12 to 13 years ago when Nathan McCauley, my co-founder, and I actually joined the same week, a company called Square. And so we were very early at Square, employees 40, 40th and 41st. And for four years, we led the security team over there and learned a lot about payments. We ended up going together to a company called Docker, where we led the security team at Docker. It really was after three years there that we started Anchorage. And so after seven years of working together, what we found was that there was a clear need from a specific market segment which was venture funds and crypto funds that were reaching out to us for help protecting these new assets that they were investing in called cryptocurrencies. And so this is a funny story, but seven years ago, there was a fund that reached out to us because they had lost the passphrase to $1.5 million Bitcoin wallet and offered us 50% or 20% apologies for if we could break into it. But that was an introduction to the business. Incredibly sophisticated investors were not so incredibly sophisticated at key management and operational security. But yeah. that's where the initial conceptualization of the idea came. And since we hadn't been working together every day for seven years, we had the right background, both security engineers at work and financial industry built large key management systems at scale. And so this was a no brainer for us to go after this particular issue. And the issue that we chose was how do we solve custody for institutions? So that was the original conceptual idea around Anchorage Digital. Got it. And so maybe you put into context the blockchain aspect of your solution and how it's differentiated versus, let's say, a large bank or some other financial institution. So there's Anchorage Digital is differentiated in many manners. Um, and it's kind of interesting because when we started, the only solution that institutions really had to custody public ledger assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum, we don't really focus that much on private blockchains, even though we can do it. We focus on the Ethereums of the world, Bitcoins of the world, so on and so forth. The only solution they had was something called cold storage, which effectively is the same technology that the pirates had in the 1700s to protect the gold coins. You know, pirates used treasure chests that they put their gold coins in and then they buried them in islands and had a little map on how to recover their treasure chests. And that sounds funny, but that's exactly what was happening as the status quo in 2017 was all of these institutions were being offered something called cold storage, which is storing private keys, these USB keys or smart cards in safety deposit boxes in a bank somewhere in Switzerland, and then creating a little checklist on how to recover them. It was the exact same technology that the pirates used. And so what we decided to do was this does not make sense. We did not create some of the most advanced currencies and digital currencies and internet native currencies to really put them in a vault somewhere. And so we need to create something that is better than cold storage from a security perspective, but allows institutions to actively participate and access their funds fast. So that's how we started in really the core of the technology. 
And that's significantly different from traditional banks. Traditional banks don't have these capabilities. In many cases, they don't even have the technology capabilities. They're really the types of banks that do primarily financial services, financial products, but they don't have the capabilities and technology that is necessary. And really the cybersecurity capabilities that are necessary to store tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of irrecoverable private keys. So are you saying that your technology is cloud-based and, you know, the way you are securing the keys is a function of just the proprietary system that you have built and it's more geared towards uh, these cryptocurrencies, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum? Is that the right way to frame it? Yeah. So think about it this way. Crypto assets are completely different than traditional assets. Traditional securities, when you buy a square stock, are effectively held in, on paper and at a digital ledger at a company called ATCC, which is a central clearinghouse. But that's all effectively a database and some papers as a backup. That is a paper pushing operation effectively. That's how the technology of traditional security settlement actually ends up happening. There's lots of technology, lots of APIs, but ultimately there's a database and some backup paper in some cases. What we had to create to do custody for crypto assets was completely different. We needed to have a way of storing private keys that are effectively, you can think of them as very long passwords that actually allow you to have access to your Bitcoin or your Ethereum that are extremely vulnerable when you're actively using them on. And as you know, from just the news, there's effectively no company out there that hasn't had a security breach. And security breaches are very impactful for the data that gets leaked. But now imagine that data are private keys that are worth $100 billion and they can siphon away all of consumers money, all of an institution's capital. That would be absolutely disastrous. And there is no ability to claw back things like the traditional financial world has. You can do a clawback and do try to reverse an ACH for a few days, can try to reverse a wire for a few days, but there is no such thing as reversing a Bitcoin transaction. So the level of technical ability and security that you needed to build did not exist before Anchorage came into, into the market. So we needed to build completely new technology. It is proprietary in a way, but there's no secrets. There's just great security engineering, we think. So we talk about it very publicly. We use a combination of many things. Yes, we use clouds, but primarily we depend the security on these hardware security modules, which are pieces of hardware that are purposefully built for protecting keys. In fact, many of the government agencies out in the world use HSMs to store things like nuclear launch codes and things like that. So that's the level of, of security that these types of hardware are used for. And 100%. it's a combination of cloud security, hardware security modules, and just a great engineering around authenticating humans. So are you doing your own custom hardware or is it built on some ASIC or a chip that you're using from a hardware vendor? Yeah, so primarily commodity hardware. So hardware that you can buy off of these specific HSM manufacturers. They have to have all these sorts of characteristics, FIPS level three compliance and the ability of running custom code inside of them. So there's lots of characteristics that we require from these hardwares, from pieces of hardware. There's not that many manufacturers that actually produce hardware at this level. Usually they're the same manufacturers that send in and sell to the governments. And so we end up using those types of hardware. So the the Talus of the world and Cyphers of the world, those types of hardware security modules are the ones that we use. Got it. And so you're not a regulated entity at this point of time. The reason I bring this uh, up is because uh, one knows what happened with FTX and, and just the liquidity and the mismanagement of funds over there. So 
curious to hear from your perspective if you're regulated in any way and if you have plans to do that down the line. Not only we are regulated, we are the only company that has a federal banking charter to do custody for crypto assets. So we have Anchorage Digital Bank has the same charter as BNY Mellon and JPMorgan Chase and all the banks. And we're still the only operational crypto company with the bank charter. We got it just over two years ago. And to this day, there's no one else that can actually provide this level of safety and regulation. That is why very large banks, very large companies like Visa, all the big funds use Anchorage because we are the only unambiguous qualified custodian. So again, we are regulated. Not only we are regulated, we are extremely regulated because we're regulated as a bank by the OCC, the oldest banking regulator in the United States. Got it. And so on a related note, then how much volume of Bitcoins are you kind of securing at this point of time? And maybe you can talk about uh, on an aggregate basis, Bitcoin, Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies. Just give us a sense of the overall volume that is in your custody versus what's available in the open markets. Of course. So we have not just Bitcoin, of course, we have hundreds of assets that we support. We support assets that institutions want to invest in. So if there's a new blockchain coming out, for example, Aptos came out recently. There was a lot of excitement from um, the crypto community around it. And many very large investors uh, invested in this asset. So we supported it and now we support it Anchorage. And so like Aptos, like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, we support many, many hundreds of, of these types of assets. We also have many hundreds of clients, just under a thousand, and we have tens of billions of dollars on the platform with many tens of billions having moved and been settled and moved back and forth across time. So it's actually a pretty large order of magnitude of operation that Anchorage is, is running at this point. Sure. We have been around for almost six years and we are the ones that have the best brand in the market, not just because of the technology that we've built in the safety, but of course, because we are still the only regulated federally chartered bank that does crypto. And so what is the business model then? How do the institution of clients pay you? Is it based on the number of keys you're storing? Just if you can elaborate on the business model, that would be great. Of course. We use a very familiar traditional financial services type of model. What that means is that each of our services has a different charging model, but that is aligned with the actual value that we're providing or the volume that's coming through Anchorage. So first, let me describe, we not only, Anchorage Digital not only does custody, we also do staking, we do brokerage, we do financing, we do settlements, we have governance, so you can vote with your crypto assets. All of these services are services that we offer today and we can get today from Anchorage. And the way that we charge to them are, for example, on custody, we charge a percentage of assets under custody on a yearly basis. So the same way that you'd pay for AUM on a kind of an asset manager. In terms of brokerage, we would charge an actual number of basis points on each trade. So completely aligned with the volume that's coming through. Same thing for settlement. For staking, it's a percentage of staked gains. For lending, it's net interest. So NIM, in all of that is just traditional, regular financial services type of model. In some cases, we also charge just recurring fees for platform access, but every single business is aligned with the growth of crypto so that we can benefit from crypto actually dealing it. So with the closest public competitor be Coinbase for you or is it someone else? No, Coinbase is primarily a retail company. Over 90% of the revenue is still coming from, from retail. And Anchorage is an institutional only business. We do not onboard 
Diogo Monica is not on board onto Anchorage. It has to be an institution itself. And usually we focus on very large institutions that I mentioned a couple of them, but no, corporates like Visa and sovereign wealth funds and very large pension funds and very large banks. Those are the types of clients that, that we serve. And so in that sense, it's very different. But they do have an institutional custody solution. And so there's all these, uh, there's all these overlaps, but no direct competitor, especially no direct competitor in the sense that if you're looking for an unambiguous qualified custodian, there's many of these large players that are RAAs, registered investor advisors. And there's a, a rule by the SEC that says that they have to use a third party qualified custodian. So there's actually a rule by the SEC that, that says that they need to use a third party custodian. They can't do self custody. And so. Anchorage is the only unambiguous qualified custodian, thus meaning that there's really no other safe alternatives and alternatives that are as clear and have as much clarity from a regulatory, regulatory perspective as Anchorage. So that's very important and a very big differentiator. And, and so when you think about where this market is headed, given what has transpired this year, both in terms of the volatility with crypto, as well as the overall market sentiment and the prognosis around slowing growth and Fed raising rates, like... How are you preparing or what's your view internally in terms of growth in this space and how should investors be looking at just the impact that crypto may have over the near term as well as long term? Yeah. So for us, obviously, the strategy was to capitalize ourselves there adequately. We raised $250 million from KKR, Goldman Sachs, Apollo, PayPal, and instead of just Absolutely amazing investors, lots of New York royalty coming into that round in, in 2022. And so we're extremely well capitalized to last for as long as it's necessary for the spare market to, to be over. So that's been our strategy in terms of a balance sheet, just being extremely well capitalized and being able to tackle the opportunities and really win when the market starts going up, which is what ends up invariably happened happening. But we, we've been part of at Anchorage for drawdowns, very big drawdowns. And it's always happened the same way where things go down, there's no interest, and then some new type of use case and product market fit emerges. Initially, it was Ethereum emerging, that it was the ICO boom, then you had DeFi summer, you've had the, the NFTs use cases. All of that has been uh, propelling the crypto market to new highs every single time one of these things happens. And you really have to prepare for those highs. And you have to hunker down and continue executing on your mission and on your goals during the bear markets which is when you build. And then during the bull markets is when uh, you make the majority of your money. So, I mean, we've heard, you know, a lot of terms last year, really since the crypto kind of came to the scene, whether it's DeFi, Web3, NFTs. And I, I feel like if there was a point where, you know, there were just way too many jargons. So for someone who is actually focusing on that industry, you have a real product out there, what do you think is the real use case out of all the things that get associated with crypto? It's really all of these to, to a different extent. I think uh, NFTs have found product market fit. NFTs continue proliferating. Obviously, these booms and busts mean that the types of head-scratching valuations of each NFT and the volume uh, is not as high as it was, but there's a clear need product market fit there for certain types of consumers for brands. And so we continue seeing that. Uh, we continue seeing uh, product market fit for stable coins. The ease of use and ability to integrate and have programmable money that is a stable coin, so tied to the US dollar, it's been incredible. So corporates continue investing in it. Lots of different companies are adding it. There's lots of potential for remittances. All of those have found mark product market fit, and it's very hard to argue against it. 
Obviously, Bitcoin is found private market fit as sovereign resistant internet native money. So that's actually important too, even though many people, including anybody that lives in the US, doesn't quite appreciate that the same way that anyone that lives in Venezuela or Turkey or Africa appreciates as much the, the capital, lack of capital controls, uh, very restrictive capital controls, which part of the reason why Bitcoin exists. But many of these things have found private market fit, even though some of them have not yet. So right. I would say that there's five or six different use cases that have been incredibly successful and will continue to be successful in the future. And so when you hear about ChatGPT and, you know, all the new AI stuff, you know, just generative AI and stable diffusion, do you think it will take away focus from a lot of the crypto mania or just the hype around crypto that we saw over the last two years? I mean, maybe some capital moves away, but there's always fly-by-night type of crypto enthusiasts. And uh, we don't miss those. I think the ones that stay behind are the builders and those are the ones that actually matter because those are the ones that are going to continue creating product market fit use cases, continue to get consumer and institutional adoption into the space. So ultimately, the success of crypto is not really dependent on some of those folks being part of the industry. The reality, though, is that seed stage in crypto has been as healthy as it's ever been. There's so much capital that is being invested in these companies. I see it every day. All these companies getting funded. Obviously, later stage is harder. So you really need to show metrics. And in crypto, some of these companies have a hard time showing metrics that justify a Series A or Series B or Series C. But it's a lot of seed money going into lots of different projects that have a lot of potential. And the number of developers continue growing. And so the prices go down, but engineers are up, designers are up, product people are up, capital is up in terms of seed, inset- seed investments. And so that is a recipe for success. And so you mentioned developers, like when, when I look at the developer community and how everyone seems to be focused on just basically making sure that they attract developers in terms of building the latest kind of technology, whether it's around AI or crypto. And I'm wondering if there is a way to think of how big the developer community is it, it is for a concept like crypto as well as what you are doing is obviously a function of how big the crypto community gets and, you know, what kind of transactions you see as a result of people interested in crypto. So curious if there is a way to put into perspective how big that developer community is. You mentioned it's growing, but I wanted to see if we can further elaborate on that. Yes, absolutely. We can. Um, There's all these reports that track this pretty closely. So, for example, as of December 2022, we had a peak of, I believe, just over 23,000 active monthly active developers in in crypto, all of crypto, all of the projects. So across Bitcoin, Ethereum, all these other projects. And that's incredibly exciting because it actually is somewhat uncorrelated on the way down to the crypto prices. What has been happening is every time crypto prices go up, the number of developers shoot up. However, when the prices come down, the number of developers maintains steady. So it's effectively monotonically, strictly monotonically increasing function. What what this means across time, there's only more people that come into crypto and not people leaving crypto when the prices actually go down. And so there's been an all-time number of, I believe, 61,000 developers, new developers contributed code for the first time in 2022, for example. And so there's been a massive growth in the monthly active developers for Bitcoin. I think 3x since 2018, 5x for Ethereum. There's some developers for all these ecosystems. And so it's actually pretty easy to track. And there's lots of numbers and lots of graphs that you can look at. 
that show you that developers and designers and folks actually creating companies continue up into the right, regardless of crypto action. And so that's absolutely fantastic news. So what, according to you, was be an inflection point in terms of taking this mainstream? I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, there were multiple boom and busts, again, very short term in nature for the most part. But what do you think will be like that one big inflection for taking this mainstream? I don't think there's going to be any one big inflection. I think it's going to be a combination of all these booms and busts. Every time what is happening is there's, there's just a normal path for technology, right? The Gartner hype cycle, if you want to talk about it that way, right? There's some technology trigger, either Ethereum comes along along, and there's the ability of generating any kind of tokens on it, or Ethereum becomes sophisticated enough for people to start putting NFTs on it. Or now there's so much code there that you can actually create a whole new financial industry. There's all decentralized in the case of DeFi. All of these have come from some technology trigger that have had a boom, they've reached the peak of inflated expectations. And then obviously they go through a bust, the trough of disillusionment, and then eventually there'll be a slope of enlightenment and then the plateau of productivity. That that should be the same type of thing that happens. Except in crypto, it's not just one technology. It's a set of overlapping technologies. NFT is going through this at the same time that, that, that DeFi came through this a little bit earlier, at the same time that Ethereum came through this a little bit earlier. And all of these compounding peaks and troughs are going to continue creating just the growth and momentum in crypto of new things coming into the space and gaining slow adoption as people actually realize what is actually good for an NFT or what is actually the use case for an NFT versus not, or what is the actual use case for DeFi versus not. So that this is going to follow the traditional model of technology adoption. There's just lots and lots of these triggers that have been happening. And I think a lot of the innovation in crypto is happening at a completely crazy pace. Would well, you need like one of the large tech companies to endorse the technology and just the addressable market that is there for something like this? Or you think it will be all organic and driven by VC and all the private funding that you mentioned? No, it's, it's really all of the above. I think it's a lot harder for traditional company to come in in a very meaningful manner and to do something truly revolutionary. I think we saw what happened with DM and Facebook, right? That project. But they came in and it was validated by Facebook as something that they wanted to do. And so this, these types of projects and, and stable coins are more than validated. Uh, now, the question is, which large companies are going to adopt them first? But I would make many arguments to say that the very large companies have already in many ways adopted this. Google is running nodes for Solana and running nodes for many different blockchains. So they're actually on Google Cloud supporting this infrastructure. You can just go to Google Cloud and then just have access to statistics for Ethereum, statistics for Bitcoin running nodes for these networks. So they're already giving you infrastructure for you to integrate and run applications on top of these blockchains. That's the beginning of supporting these five types of use cases. There's many companies that accept crypto. Uh, there's many companies actually doing settlements with USDC. I think just Anchorage announced our settlement project with Visa. So Visa allowing stablecoin settlement or card issuers so they don't actually have to use a traditional financial system and wait T plus two for settlements on Fedwire. So there's all of these use cases, all of these companies, there's so many large companies that have already validated that all of these are very legitimate use cases and continue pushing forward, right? Real world assets are something that is happening. We've been talking about securitization for a long time. There's many large companies like KKR, Apollo that have kind of like done moves there. Even Goldman Sachs has done it. We've had JPM creating JPM coin and actually contributing with, with an Ethereum based blockchain towards, towards some settlement systems. So all these things have happened. All of these large 
entities have a, a blockchain pass and have kind of like on their own validated different aspects of the crypto world. So that's already happened. And then one other related question around technology. So right now, obviously, it still hasn't hit mainstream in terms of when I compare it to social media platforms, for example. If we had to move to that kind of scale where some of these platforms were like social media companies with 2 billion daily active users, a billion plus daily active users, what would it take from an infrastructure perspective to make that happen in terms of just even either driving transactions or just usage around how you use these underlying systems at that scale? So it's an excellent point. And one of the things that has been most researched and currently is underway, and there's many types of competitors, is actually scalability on blockchains. I think we all know that the first blockchain, the case of Bitcoin, when it was created, it was really creating and allowed for six or seven transactions a second, which is obviously very low if you are actually trying to get a payments use case on it that requires 50,000 transactions a second. But we already have all these rollups, alternative layer ones that are very fast, like Aptos, like Solana. You have these other technologies that allow you to do settlement off-chain. You have all of these zero-knowledge proof-based solutions that allow you to have the same types of security principles that you had before, but allows you to scale 100x, 1000x to really reach those hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. So we're not quite yet at the hundreds of thousands, but we're very well into tens of thousands of transactions a second already. And so we can already support many of these use cases. So I would say that five years ago, the infrastructure was not there. Today, we already are beginning and in some cases already absolutely have the infrastructure that is necessary to support those types of, of numbers of users. Definitely up to hundreds of millions of users and then later on billions of users if they want to jump in into crypto today. And geographically, would it be fair to say this is still a U.S. phenomena or do you think from, from a revenue and a monetization perspective? Is that a fair characterization of where we are right now? Well, it depends. So in terms of building, it's interesting because it's a super decentralized phenomenon, but still the large majority of crypto companies are created in the U.S. So that's kudos to the U.S. for having just an economic engine and a powerhouse of money, talent, and obviously risk-seeking culture that allows us to, even in a fully decentralized post-COVID world, to have a crypto phenomenon that prides itself in its decentralization still be US-centric, and many of them still end in places like San Francisco and New York. And so that's still dominant in the US. Another thing that is dominant in the US is that it's just dominant in terms of traditional financial institutions. So the majority of the business in terms of institutional business for us, Anchorage Digital, is still in the US too. And so I would say that the US is 70% of our business, 60 to 70% of our business, at least, and even though Asia obviously is increasing, it's been increasing across time. However, in terms of use cases, I would say remittances is, you know, US, but the Mexico corridor, there's Bitcoin as a use case has definitely been getting very popular in places like Venezuela in places like Turkey, in Africa, in China. So think about the use case that Bitcoin is going after is not very popular in the United States right now, but it's very popular in other places of the world, a lot more popular in other places of the world. And then NFTs also have their own regions. And then gaming, there's lots of uh, different countries in Asia that have taken to NFT, sorry, crypto gaming and play to earn types of crypto games a lot more than the US, for example. So institutions and companies being created for crypto, that's still US dominated. But for everything else, it's actually pretty widespread. And it's focused on different regions, depending on which particular vertical we're talking about. So I'm down to my last five minutes. So I try to ask some qu 
quick rapid fire type of question. So why don't we get into that and let's do it. Yeah. I would love to hear your preferences around what, especially like a technology or trend that you are most excited about over the next two years. Like for you, as somebody who has worked in the security industry and really had a great career, I mean, basically working at so many startups, uh, what, what is it that you find exciting around you for the, over the next uh, one or two years? Yeah, there are so many things. I don't know if I can just select one, but yeah. if I had to select one, I think I would go back to my cryptography background and it would talk about zero knowledge proofs. I think zero knowledge is something that is both overhyped in certain circles, but completely underhyped in terms of actual potential impact on the internet in general. People don't realize how many things are still broken on the internet and were just created in a way that just wasn't ideal from day one something as simple as sharing a password. Right now, when you log in into, say, your Gmail account or your Facebook account, you know something that is secret that is called a password. Yet, to log in, you actually send your password to Facebook and to Google. So they know now your password because you're sending to them to prove that you are who you say you are. That's obviously not ideal and borderline idiotic. And so zero knowledge proofs allow you to do something very cool, which is you can prove without ever revealing the thing that you know. So the only fact that you're revealing is the fact that you know something. And that's just beautiful. And it's something that is very wide applicability and it's going to have many kinds of impact in terms of privacy and in terms of just how the internet functions and also a lot of applicability in crypto crypto assets. That's definitely something that has already happened. Right. And then what could go wrong with your assumptions in terms of how you're thinking about this space? Uh, any big risk factor out there that you worry about? Yes, very many risk, big risk factors. So number one, obviously, regulation. We have done the right thing from day one. Anchorage was always a company that is asks for permission, not forgiveness, and that nobody voluntarily goes and gets an OCC chartered bank just because they want to. It's extremely painful. It's extremely thorough. And it's worth it for us because it's the highest regulatory charter in the land, but it's also incredibly costly, hard to maintain, right? And so one of the risks is that even though we've done everything right, the crypto industry gets overregulation and that the regulators just looking at everything that happened with FTX go a little bit too far and do some knee-jerk reaction and regulate in a way that is not ideal for the space. And they end up killing crypto before it actually gets out with all the use cases that we could have gotten out or kills crypto in the United States, which is actually a likelier outcome there, just pushes out outside of the US. We have such a big opportunity to continue increasing the relevance of the US dollar and the dominance of the US dollar in the form of stable coins. 99% of stable coins are dollar denominated. And so instead of killing it, we should actually be supporting it and should be making sure that that is actually something that ends up happening. So that's one of our biggest fears is obviously overregulation that ends up pushing everybody outside of the United States. And so since you mentioned US dollar and just stable coins that are based on that, what about gold? What is your outlook for gold? Yeah, I never had, never been a gold bug. In general, I do think that the narrative that Bitcoin is a new digital gold has some truth to it, but I don't know where gold is going to do and what gold is going to be. I understand the small issuance and the fact that gold is not natural to earth. And so there's a limited quantity. So scarcity mindset, I understand that component, but I've never understood uh, it as a, a real hedge or a real investment. But do you think it will be more attractive for people to own a crypto, the same people who are trying to acquire gold in some form, whether it was physical or through like having something in, in a wall somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, crypto has so many advantages over gold. If you believe the base premises of both, 
and this is a big if, lots of people don't, don't believe in it, but I think over time they will. If you believe that scarcity of Bitcoin is true scarcity, then it's way better for you to just have crypto on your phone. You can have $100 million on your phone and you can carry it across continents and you can most definitely not carry $100 million worth of gold bars across continents. That is absolutely impossible. And you can't even protect it. So now you're dependent on some external vault, some external safe deposit box, or you're dependent on buying gold, not directly instead of holding it and doing self-custody, but just buying shares of gold, in which case you don't actually own the gold. And so there's all of these reasons as to why crypto is, and specifically Bitcoin, has advantages over gold. And when people think about crypto and they try to compare it to equities, do you think crypto as an asset class will have a free cash flow aspect or some cash generation that a stock allows you to do? Well, in many cases, I think you can make equivalents. In the case of Bitcoin, not really. And there's many ways for you to try to judge and do valuation of it, even though lots of them are just purely wrong. But if you look at all of the assets outside of Bitcoin that are no longer proof of work, all of them have been moving towards something called proof of stake. In which case, when you're participating in the network, helping secure the network, you're actually gaining or generating yields. So you can look at it as recouping inflation. So you are making sure that you're not, your assets are not being inflated away. The other side is that you can look at it as gaining yields. So generating 4% a year or 7% a year or 8% a year on your Ethereum or on your Aptos. So you can actually be rewarded for helping secure the network. And so in that case, there's a yield and cash flow generating component that you can then model with traditional models to kind of like look at the value that the crypto active, the crypto asset can bring. But it's the direct application of traditional models and financial industry to crypto doesn't really usually work because the fundamental value is just something that is just very hard to, to establish. Right. And finally, any misconceptions about Anchorage or crypto in general that you want to clear on this podcast? Wow, there's so many misconceptions. I think the biggest one is that we've kind of like gone away uh, away from it a little bit, but that uh, crypto doesn't want to be regulated. I think that's absolutely false. Crypto wants to be regulated and crypto wants to expand the reach of traditional financial industry. Crypto just wishes to find a new equilibrium. There's a new equilibrium that needs to be found that is better than the one that we have with traditional financial industry and traditional financial players and that crypto is pushing for. But it's not a be regulated or not be regulated. It is a how we're regulated and what portions of crypto are regulated. That is really the interesting conversation. And I think that continues to be a misconception that is an all or nothing thing and that crypto proponents are completely against regulation. And I think Anchor Digital is a great example of people that are not only proponent of regulation, we're also crypto native and just security engineers with a background that are strong and true believers of the actual ethos of coin and original ethos of cryptocurrencies. So those two things are not mutually exclusive. Got it. Well, this has been wonderful. Diogo would love to have you back at some point in the future and wish you the very best with everything. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Wendy.